Well, hello, everyone. Um, and let me add my welcome to Melissa's. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And for those of you who were looking forward to a talk on the family afterwards, you're going to have to come back next week. Because when I saw so many newcomers, I just looked for a talk I did on kind of the earlier steps. And I went and I printed it out. I haven't read it in a long time. So um but it's called Building a Bridge to God because that's what this program is really all about. So if you are new or not so new, and if you're struggling or if you're not struggling, but um, but you're here anyway and you have no choice, um, this is just something I wrote a few years ago. And um, actually it's probably my favorite of all my talks. So I'm, as I said, I'm Janet. In my notes say I'm from New Jersey. I can say that for 10 more days. And then I'll say I'm Janet B from North Carolina. And I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Um, to give you a quick summary of my history before I talk in depth about the real cause of my binging. And that's a little important, but what's really important is how God launched his search and rescue mission for me. Um, I first came into OA when I was in high school. I was already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food, I stole money for food, and at my worst, I was binging and throwing up six times a day. Um, I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse that I heaped on it. Sometimes people show their before pictures. I would have to like go onto clip art or something and find a picture of a zombie because even though I looked fairly normal, I was about 25 pounds heavier than I am now, even throwing up six times a day, I still had 25 pounds extra on me. Um, but I was a walking dead person. I could be in a room with all of you and feel like I was the only person on the planet. I was a compulsive liar. I made up crazy stories like I would cut myself with a razor, pretending I was mugged or raped. Um, I went to a hospital once for a fake rape exam, even taking the penicillin so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. I continued acting this way and binging and purging even through my first six years in OA until I was at an OA convention. Someone stood up with the big book and said she hadn't binged in a year and introduced me to the 12 steps and the God who I believe launches search and rescue programs for addicts. And once I surrendered my life to this God and committed to work these 12 steps, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And by the grace of God, next month will be 40 years. And I'm always excited to talk about this God who I believe is alive and well and working miracles. Not, not created the world in six days, took a day off and is watching Netflix, but is, is performing miracles even to this day. So the first thing I wanna to talk to you about is all the things I tried, why I thought I binged and why I was wrong. Um, I went to OA the first time when I was 15 years old and I was relieved to know I wasn't the only one who ate this way. And I thought, this is great. I'll go to these meetings and I'll get better. But it doesn't work that way. It's like someone going to Diabetics Anonymous and thinking she's going to get better just because she's hanging out with all these other diabetics. And maybe she's reading about insulin and someone talks about it every now and then. But mostly they talk about their lousy day, their lousy bosses, their lousy husbands, and why their pancreas isn't producing insulin properly. It, I wouldn't get better. I was at OA meetings and there were big books there but no one really used them or talked about them. 
And so I tried to figure out why am I not getting better? And I thought it was circumstances. I blamed it on my lousy upbringing, which in hindsight really wasn't all that lousy. And I thought maybe I binged because I was miserable, right? Who, who wouldn't binge if they're just unhappy? But I'll, I'll never forget this. I was 17 years old. I was in high school. And this college boy invited me to a Beach Boys concert. Well, when you're 17 and a college boy invites you to a Beach Boys concert, there is nothing closer to heaven. Um, and I went out and binged. And I thought like, what the heck? This shouldn't be happening. And then it's like, ah, I know. I'm binging to sabotage my happiness. No, circumstances are never the cause of relapse. And I think a lot of us have been to meetings where people have said, or we've said ourselves, I broke my abstinence because dot, dot, dot. And the dot, dot, dot was always a lousy boss, a lousy husband, annoying kids, always something having to do with circumstances. But I've since learned that if I'm eating compulsively, it's always 100% of the time because there's something wrong with my spiritual condition. It's never circumstances. Remember in our big book, Jim, in chapter three, says he had his family, his job, all was going well externally, but because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he got drunk. And then we can contrast this with Bill Wilson in the chapter of Vision for You, the text on page 154 says he was bitterly discouraged in a strange place, discredited, almost broke. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, but instead of getting drunk, he started Alcoholics Anonymous because, and this is important, because he had already surrendered his life to God. So when temptation came, he was protected. See, we don't not binge because we're good. You know, sometimes people say I was good today. Uh-uh. The only way I'm able to not binge is if I'm protected by God, never has to do with circumstances. Well, so if it wasn't circumstances, was it lack of knowledge? Did I need to know even better what foods were triggering me and get like a food plan that got smaller and smaller? I had food plan after food plan that eliminated binge foods. And I must have done the assignment to write a history of my compulsive eating 25 times. And guess what? I still couldn't stop because my problem wasn't lack of knowledge. Imagine someone going to an oncologist, being shown an X-ray or a CAT scan and being told, see that spot there? That proves you have cancer. Now that you know you have cancer, now go make your cancer cells stop multiplying. A doctor would never say that. But how many times was I told that if I really got it, if I really knew that I was a compulsive eater, if I really admitted it, I could stop. No, a first step just gets me in the door. So I'm willing to do the work, but it's not a magic abracadabra. Okay, so it wasn't circumstances. It wasn't lack of knowledge. Maybe I didn't want it badly enough. During my first six and a half years of OA, I had about 50 different sponsors and I kept getting dropped um, with people thinking and probably saying behind my back, oh, she just doesn't want it badly enough. I think sometimes people make this really um, grievous mistake and they assume that if someone can't stop binging, it's because that person doesn't really want to stop. We confuse desire with power. But remember on page 24 of the big book, it says that at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic or for us compulsive eater, 
he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking or overeating is of absolutely no avail. So there I was six and a half years in, still binging. My binge is growing more and more frequent, more and more severe. I had the knowledge, I had the desire, but I didn't have the power. Okay, what does that mean to have no power? Obviously there wasn't like a furry little creature that kept shoving my hand into a bag of this or a carton of that. It was me who did it. So what does it mean to have no power? I mean, I think this is so, so important. And the writers of the big book put the paragraph that explains it in italics. This is what they say. Page 24, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So let's break that down. Normally, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? Let's say I'm about to touch a hot stove. Well, stored in my memory are all these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, my memory will send a little thought running across this little bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. And then I don't touch it. Or another example, um, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go or go to my friend Rebecca's house who's on this line and has a cat, um, my memory will grab the data points. You went to a pet store and you got sick. You were at a friend's house who had a cat, you had an asthma attack, you got a sinus infection. And so my memory generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to, and says, stop, danger, cats will give you asthma attacks, sinus infections, you'll get sick. Again, my memory keeps me from danger. Let's talk about food. So best example I can think of in college, I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. I would always say I'm going to have just one or two, but I'd end up eating the whole box of 20 and sometimes a second box. So in my memory were all these data points of how I would promise myself I'm just going to have one, but I'd end up eating the whole box. So there I'd go down to the Dwayne Reed drugstore to buy my box of cookies to just have one. And my memory scans the data. You said you were going to have one, but you ate the whole box. You said you were just going to have a couple. You ate the whole box, the second box. You threw up. You felt miserable. All these data points generates a thought to run across the bridge. Say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box. You'll hate yourself. You'll gain weight. Don't do it. Except unlike with stoves and cats, when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to keep me in check and I had zero defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. That's an expression I'd heard in meetings. I couldn't do that. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods. When it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind where I made my decisions was broken. And once it's broken, it can never be repaired. It's not like, oh, okay, I have a broken bridge. Now I'll get it. Uh-uh. Once it's broken, we're hopeless. Just like Bill Wilson, when he said on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found 
in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Well, for me, food was my master. I had a broken bridge. So how did I recover? How do we all recover? What do we do when our bridges are broken? And the answer is we have to build another bridge, not to our memory. We have to build a bridge to God. And it starts with willingness. Now, remember, willingness doesn't just mean being willing to stick to a food plan because I'm powerless to do that. Willingness being means being willing to do the work that will allow the grace of God to come in and remove the obsession. Yes, if I've been, you know, binging on Twinkies, I get the Twinkies out of my house. But while I do that, I realize that without God's help, I can only use my willpower for a short amount of time. It has an expiration date. And as Melissa says, unlike when you look at a wrapper or something and it tells you the expiration date, we don't know when the expiration date on our willpower is going to be. It may be in five minutes. So I have to be willing to do whatever it takes. Um, Herb K says, I love this line, willingness allows grace to enter. My willingness allows grace, the grace of God to enter. Page 58 of our big book says, if you want what we have, and what do we have? A spiritual experience that results in the obsession being removed and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to work the steps? In other words, if a person isn't willing to go to any lengths, they shouldn't expect to recover. Now, if you're a smart aleck like I used to be, you might say, well, I'm not willing to rob a bank. Does that mean I can't recover? Um, but of course, the willingness they're talking about has to be in line with the recovery principles in this book. And robbing a bank would clearly violate the principle of honesty. Okay, so we're willing. What next? Next, we need faith. Faith that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I once looked in the big book to see where recovery starts. And it doesn't start with admitting we're powerless or getting the right food plan or making a certain number of phone calls or meetings. Page 46 of the big book says, as soon as we admitted the possible existence, see, we just need willingness at this point, the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps. That line is so exciting to me. Remember, lack of power is my problem. So my solution has to be an infusion of power. And as soon as I admit the possibility of God and start living my life in alignment with what I think this God, if he existed, would want of me, I start getting power. Well, that's all well and good if I have a working relationship with God. But if I had a working relationship with God, I wouldn't be here in the first place. So what do I do if I believe in God, but I don't think he can or will help me with my binging? And I've actually identified from the book um, five reasons why people think God won't help them, um, that he may help other people, but not them. And so I'm happy to go through that with anyone. And if I have time, I'll do that at the end. Um, what if a person doesn't believe in God at all? So on page 158 of the big book, we see AA number three saying, I'm paraphrasing, maybe God can help me, maybe. 
So his faith started with a maybe. And I think that when we're starting out, if we're not sure that God exists or can help, um, it's okay to say maybe. And the prayer can go something like this. God, I'm not sure you exist. And if you exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you are there, and if you do care, I need help. And the worst thing that can happen is that there's no God and you're just talking to dead air. I mean, really, so what? We've all done sillier things than that. But what if there is a God? What if there really is? And that prayer is the catalyst, the key to opening the storehouses of his grace. And I believe it is. Um, the big book talks about things that can block our belief in God. Um, Bill Wilson talks about having scales of pride and prejudice that blinded him to the reality of God. Pride, thinking of myself too much and thinking too much of myself. And prejudice, thinking too little of others and thinking of others too little. So in the chapter, we agnostics, we're told we have to look at our prejudices. And there's at least half a dozen that can be teased out of that chapter. And the chapter also warns us real clearly of three things that can obscure our view of God. So they're saying, if I don't believe in God, it's like I have spiritual cataracts and things are blocking me. So here are the things they talk about, calamity, like bad things that have happened to us or those we love or the world in general, pomp, which is worship of myself, thinking I need to get my way, and worship of other things, money, career, another person. Um, for me, I had a big um, idol, which is what worship of other things is, of my relationship with my children. I parented out of fear that they wouldn't love me enough. So I made an idol out of it. I was more concerned with their love for me than doing God's will. And I have a prayer that I use to get over my idolatry with my children. Um, so I think it's important that we all find out what our own personal prejudices and spiritual cataracts are so that we can get into that relationship with God with like eyes that see. Um, so once we have faith, the next layer of our bridge is surrender. We make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. What does that mean? Um, it simply means that I do what I think God would want me to and leave the results up to him. Um, so here's maybe a way to understand it. Generally, we have goals and the goals are often good ones such as raising respectful children. However, that's my goal. And it's radically different when my one goal, it's like my uber goal, that's the umbrella over everything else, is simply to do God's will. So let's say I want to raise respectful children and I try my hardest and I do the right thing most of the time, but my kids aren't respectful. Well, if raising respectful kids is my goal, you can be sure that I will start getting resentful and fearful and feeling like a failure and probably doing a good deal of manipulating and raising my voice in order to reach my goal. But if my goal is simply to do God's will, and I believe that God's will is for me to teach my kids how to be respectful, I'll still raise them the same way, but I'm less likely to get angry, fearful, and frustrated because I'm not focused on the results, having respectful children, only on my obedience to God, how my kids turn out, is really not my business. 
So in other words, the goal shifts from achieving something, even if that something is good, to simply doing God's will as best I can. And if I don't know what God's will is, what I can always do is ask myself, what does love look like in this situation? And I may make mistakes, but that's okay. That's okay. God gives me credit for trying. What does love look like in this situation? So now I've got a layer of willingness, a layer of faith, and a layer of surrender. So I've got a rickety little bridge connecting me to God, but there's more work to do because I need a bridge sturdy enough to withstand the certain trials and low spots that page 15 promises me are ahead. So I need to clear up those obstacles on the bridge, those things that are blocking me from getting up close and personal with God. And those obstacles are my resentments, my fears, and the harms I've committed. Um, I inventory those, I share them with an understanding person, and then I take a nice long look at my defective character, the things that block me from God. And something really cool happens. Even though I created, I caused all these obstacles, these boulders, really. God doesn't make me lift them myself. He could. He'd have every right to say, you made this mess. Now you clean it up and I'll be waiting with open arms on the other side. But he knows that I can't. So he picks up the boulders that are too heavy for me to lift. And he removes my character defects. In other words, God helps me build my bridge to him. And once my defects are removed, I go out and I make amends to the people I've harmed. And then I've got a nice, sturdy bridge. I have a connection with God and it will stay connected and I will stay protected. Remember, the only way I stay abstinent, I need that bridge. So God and I can go back and forth. Um, I have to continue doing three things. I have to clear away the wreckage of each day, right? That's my 10 step, my nightly review, wreckage of the day. Um, then I have to communicate with God through prayer and meditation. I mean, what good is it to say, God, I'm going to do your will, but not give him the time and space to let me know what his will is. At my job, I make sure to give my boss time and space to tell me what he needs me to do. How much more so do I have to do that for my real employer, my employer with a capital E? It's my step 11. And the third thing I have to do is I have to help other people build their bridges. And if I do that, I am promised immunity against compulsive eating, right? The first line of the chapter, working with others, says nothing will ensure immunity so much as intensive work with other alcoholics or for us compulsive eaters, like immunity, right? When we, got the, when we get vaccines, we get immunity. Um, if a diplomat from another country comes to America and commits a crime, he has immunity. He's safe and protected from the police arresting him. Um, by building my bridge and helping others build theirs, I have immunity against the disease of compulsive eating. So when I first started, I said, I believe God launches search and rescue programs for addicts. And I really do. Um, he launched one for me and he didn't just rescue me from compulsive eating. He restored not only my sanity, but my life. Like I don't lie anymore ever. And remember I'm the woman who went to the hospital faking rapes. I don't lie about anything. Um, my teenage, when my kids were teenagers, they would say, mom, did you look at my texts? 
because they knew if I did, I would confess. And when my son was 18, I once overheard him um, telling his girlfriend, my mom is a lot of things, but she's not a liar. Um, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but from an 18 year old boy, I guess that's, I'll take what I can get, right? Um, my marriage is good. My career is good. And even like during the times of coronavirus, I felt a great sense of purpose. I have the best friends that anyone could want. And I have a God who will never let go. Um, I wanna close with a few words specifically for the compulsive eater who's still eating compulsively, who's feeling like I was for my first six and a half years in OA. Um, when I went to meetings and made phone calls and turned over my food and went through a revolving door of sponsors and still didn't get it. Those things weren't enough because the only solution put forth for a real compulsive eater is a miracle. Remember when Bill was 12 step, he said, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. But the coolest thing is that our book gives us the recipe for a miracle. On page 57, when describing a hardcore alcoholic who was restored to sanity by God, the text says, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Okay, they're giving us the elements of a miracle, a recipe for a miracle, and they're telling us it's simple. And here's what they're telling us. One, circumstances made him willing to believe. There's his first and second step. His life was unmanageable. He was willing to do anything. Then he humbly offered himself to his maker, his third step. Then he knew. He, he surrendered to God and then God showed up. So an admission of powerlessness, willingness, and surrender. Every one of us could have that miracle because really, please believe me, there really is a God who's alive and well and waiting for us to build our bridges to him. And with that, I pass. Thanks.